Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just how great is the Great Resignation? We look behind the headlines to find out what's really going on in the labour market. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and in today's episode, we'll examine a shift in the power of American workers. Is big labour back for good? People right now are tremendously sympathetic to unions, and the question is, can the unions work with that and modulate their demands in a way that continues to have public support? And we look to Europe to assess a national experiment in building a paradise for digital nomads. They are building a fleet of national co-working spaces. They're offering $5,000 bonuses, but alongside the incentives, they have to set rules too. Dismal scientists have a remarkable affection for one hyperbolic adjective. Here we go. The Great Depression. The Great Moderation. The Great Recession. I've lost count of how many episodes of economic history have had greatness thrust upon them. And you've probably noticed that we now have another one. The Great Resignation. The idea is basically that the pandemic has led people to reevaluate their life priorities in, in all sorts of ways. People are no longer willing to put up with low wages or bad conditions or very long working hours. And how this manifests itself is that supposedly people are kind of chucking in the towel en masse and doing something else with their lives. Callum Williams is our senior economics writer. It was originally coined in May in a Bloomberg article by a business professor at Texas A&M University called Anthony Klotz. Uh, and since then, it's kind of spread everywhere. So economists are constantly talking about it. Whenever you talk to investors or business people, they're all worried about the Great Resignation and think it's a massive deal. Journalists are always talking about it. Online, there's this uh, subreddit called Anti-Work, which is now uh, kind of seeing more activity than even the Wall Street Bets uh, subreddit, which people will remember back in, in the summer was causing all sorts of mayhem in financial markets. So there's no question that this is one of the big zeitgeisty ideas of the post-lockdown world. The only sort of problem with it is that when you actually dig down into, into the thesis, there's actually not a whole lot of evidence to support it. Well, that sounds a bit awkward for all those headline writers. But that said, the latest figures out last week from America's Labour Department showed a smaller increase in jobs than forecasters had expected, which kind of seems consistent with the Great Resignation thesis. So what do the data suggest? I think it's useful to divide uh, countries up into kind of two buckets. And the first bucket is the UK and the US, which is where the Great Resignation thesis seems strongest. So job quits in the US, i.e. how many people are quitting their job per month, 
are very high at the moment. They are also probably very high in the UK, although they're measured slightly differently. Wage growth in both countries is pretty high as well, which kind of suggests that employers are having to respond to the threat of people departing. And then, as you say, there's the jobs numbers for uh, November, which came out recently, which show kind of quite poor levels of job creation. And the reason why that's at least on the, on the face of it, consistent with the Great Resignation thesis, is it kind of suggests that companies are struggling to find workers. However, beneath the headline figure, there is a more kind of nuanced tale about what's going on in the US and the UK. So some people have pointed out that the various kinds of adjustments that the statisticians have to make to the uh, jobs numbers in the US have kind of made the report seem worse than it actually was. So once you account for various kinds of seasonal adjustments and revisions, American jobs growth looks much stronger. In other words, what you're, what you're starting to see now is a labour market in the US that is starting to look a bit more normal. Labour force participation is moving up. Some of the industries that were seeing really unsustainably high wage growth a few months ago, they're starting to kind of cool off. It's kind of becoming a little bit more difficult to look at the US and say, this labour market is really weird. And one of the big things that's going on is that people are kind of quitting in droves. Okay, so that's the picture in the United States. How does it compare with elsewhere in the world? So the UK is kind of closest to the US, fast wage growth, a large number of resignations, also a very high level of vacancies. If you look at basically any other country, though, then the Great Resignation story really just falls apart straight away. So if you look at Canada, for example, the number of people who have quit their job because they're dissatisfied, there's no no suggestion that it's been going up. In Japan, again, not exactly the same measure as in the US, but it's pretty close. That's near historical lows rather than historical highs. Uh, If you look at how people are moving between employment, unemployment and so on in places like New Zealand. Those figures look entirely unremarkable. Across the EU as a whole, there's no kind of good quits measure comparable to what you have in the US. But you can't really cut the data any way to suggest that there's a big rising in resignations with the possible exception of Italy, where there is evidence of a small rise in resignations. But generally speaking, outside the UK and the US, the great resignation story falls apart straight away. Okay, if it is purely an Anglo-American phenomenon, how much of it is, well, to use a word of the moment, transitory? I think almost all of it is. There's sort of a few things to bear in mind. There's a very strong historical relationship between the number of available vacancies and job quits. That, that is true in both the UK and the US. When people are on the internet or opening a newspaper and they see loads of job uh, advertisements they're more likely to spot something that that suits them and think, oh, great, you know, even if I do like my job, I found something even better, so I'm going to quit my job and go and move. It's also the case that in such an environment, you're going to have employers that are actually searching for people and trying to poach staff from other companies. Once you account for the fact that vacancies in both the UK and the US are very high at the moment, then the number of job quits that we're seeing in both countries is completely unremarkable, almost exactly where you'd expect it to be. The other thing to bear in mind is that at the sort of peak of the the lockdown, job quits collapsed. So what that I think means is that you've got a lot of what could be described as sort of pent up resignations. People who would really have liked to have quit their job last year, and now only after the labour market is kind of clearly recovering, are they, you know, plucking up the courage to do that. So once you account for those two factors, 
surge in job quits does seem rather transitory. So, Callum, if what we're seeing isn't truly a great resignation, then then what is it? How would you characterise it? Is there something fundamental changing in the labour market longer term as a result of the pandemic or not? I think there are some fundamental shifts. Uh, the most obvious one is is the shift to working from home, which is a whole separate thing, but is clearly a permanent shift, I think. As for whether there's been a kind of permanent shift in the bargaining power between workers and businesses, maybe so. I think if you talk to businesses now and compare that with what they were saying 10 years ago, there's much more emphasis on like doing right by your workers. And I don't don't think all of that is just corporate fluff. I think some of that actually does reflect a recognition of the fact that for a lot of people last year, especially essential frontline workers, people made enormous sacrifices last year and kind of need to be effectively compensated for that. But equally, I don't think that there has really been a big shift in preferences in terms of what people want to get out of working life. Most people just don't really have that choice open to them. You know, people have to buy food and heat their homes and transport themselves around. People do just need to earn money. And there's no real evidence that, you know, those consumption preferences have have really changed. So I think in some ways there have been some permanent shifts, but in other ways, those shifts are exaggerated. And I think the shift associated with the quote unquote great resignation is one of those exaggerated shifts. Callum, thanks very much for talking to us. Thanks, Patrick. We'll be back in a moment to ask what that debate around the power balance in the labour market means for America's once mighty unions. But first, this is your final call to tell us what you think about Money Talks and all of our podcasts. Our listener survey is open for a very limited time. Go to economist.com slash moneytalkssurvey and tell us everything. We really want to hear from you. That's economist.com slash moneytalkssurvey. And that link is in the notes for this episode. Welcome everyone to the White House. And I really mean that. This is your house. America's labor unions are a diminished but still formidable force. In my White House, you'll always be welcome. You'll always be welcome. Labor will always be welcome. In President Biden, they have the most sympathetic occupant of the White House in almost a century. This is your house. I wouldn't be here without you. And public opinion is with the unions in a way it hasn't been since the 1960s. According to Gallup, their approval rating just hit 68%. You know, you've heard me uh, say many times, I intend to be the most pro-union president, leading the most pro-union administration in American history. But I think one of the reasons I'm able to do that is the public is changing too. You've changed the public, you've educated them a lot. With the wind at their backs, but not much time before Mr Biden risks losing legislative power in next year's midterm elections, America's labour unions sense a moment of opportunity. The resurgence has to be looked upon in two very, very different ways. Tom Easton is our American business editor. The obvious way is there are a number of strikes going on. I think there were 58 in November, there was 58 in October. There was a discussion about Striketober, which is now a discussion of strike Xmas. There are unionization drives going on all over the place as well. There's one going on in Buffalo today at Starbucks. And there was one going on in Alabama that will resume again against Amazon. And 
the AFL-CIO, that's the umbrella union in the United States, has said that it really wants to target tech. So you have new industries and you have old industries, and they're all in this ferment. This happens at a time where labor, which has been losing membership and its hold on America really since the late 1940s, has had a brief resurgence, if not in membership, but in popularity. So that's the obvious way. What's going on under the radar? Yeah, so the unobvious way is quite curious. You know, the Biden administration, in my mind, has been, you know, rightfully criticized for being shambolic about many, many things. When it comes to labour, this is not true. So what's the administration doing to make good on those promises? You know, labour rules, as they're administered, are impossibly complex. And clearly people in the Biden administration understand all of them. Biden was sworn in as president in January. And his first move, I think, was to fire the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Bureau. Now, that is not a job that most people even know exists, but it is incredibly important. That person is the government's chief prosecutor of labor and management. Soon after the firing, a memo was put out that rescinded all Trump administration directives. Six other memos have gone out in the subsequent months. And they have turned many, many labor laws upside down in rules that will favor organizing, in rules that will favor strikes, in rules that will disfavor management's efforts to block unions. At the same time, the National Labor Relations Board has a kind of judicial panel at the very top with five members. There were two vacancies. It nominated extremely experienced labor lawyers with deep union backgrounds, and it worked very, very effectively to get them approved right away. And they're now on the labor board, and they have a majority of the labor board. This was really a consummate political achievement. And what's happening on the legislative side? There are many, many pending bills, two in particular, that would substantially advance the rights of labor. Now, those have been bottled up in Congress, but they're there beyond the bills that are explicitly in favor of labor unions. In the broader bills, Joe Biden's famous multi-trillion dollar Build Back Better bill, and in the infrastructure bill, numerous provisions have been seeded in that favor big labor. You know, in the infrastructure bill, there are prevailing wage clauses that are payment structures that will favor labor. In Build Back Better, there are penalties that can be assessed against business that are driving business crazy. There are benefits for electric car construction, but they only accrue to labor-organized companies. So Tesla, the biggest producer of electric cars in America, is not eligible. I mean, it's almost a sport to try to go through these massive bills and see all the provisions that have been seeded in that favor labor unions. So legislatively, he's done a tremendous amount. In terms of adjudication, he's done a tremendous amount. And then there's a third area as well. Wow, so they're really firing on all cylinders. What's the third way? He created an unprecedented committee that includes every cabinet minister and the heads of many, many agencies. And their job has been to come up with suggestions that will allow the administration to advance labor's objectives without going through Congress. And a report on what they wanted, which siphoned through 400 different suggestions, was finished on October 23rd. And it's yet to be made public, but people anticipate it will be public in any day. So therefore, there's adjudication, there's legislation, there's moves in the executive branch. There is just no way I could imagine an administration, you know, pushing the labor agenda more. What do you think is the ultimate goal here from the administration's perspective? Why this coordinated push? Okay, so there is one overriding goal that is shared by both labor and by the administration is more members of big labor. 
Now, a cynic might say more members of big labor makes big labor more important. And more members of big labor are presumably Joe Biden supporters, though Trump did have some big labor support. So those are all voters. So if you don't want to be cynical about this, you could say he believes that labor unions are an essential component to America, and so does big labor, and they converge on that. So that's goal number one. Goal number two are sub-goals. They term them as voice, investment, and security. So what does voice mean? The ability to have a role in American policy. Investment means they love big infrastructure bills that could take lots of highly paid labor unions. And finally, therefore, what you could call security. They want job security for labor unions, for pensions, and they want health care and all the things that go into And that squares with the Biden administration's statist approach to government. So there's an alignment of incentives. And how are the bosses responding to this drive? What moves are you seeing on the employer's side to keep up with this? This is a much, much tougher element of the story. So most bosses are being very, very careful about what they say out loud. Now, privately or behind the scenes, they're doing, of course, many, many things. Generally through their trade organizations like the American Chamber of Commerce or the National Manufacturers Association, they're lobbying like crazy. And in their own companies, they're doing lots of things to preempt union drives. Both Starbucks and Amazon have given three raises in the past year. Amazon's raise will soon be at the Bernie Sanders recommended minimum wage level, which is far above the federal level and they're introducing a lot of benefits. The um, Bureau of Labor Statistics, which tracks compensation, notes that its non-union level of compensation and wage increases has been higher than the union level, and that's at the highest level in a decade. But I don't think companies feel right now that the political winds really allow for a vibrant debate. They're going to be very, very quiet. And so you'll see a one-sided argument in the public square and all these other things going on underneath the surface. So far, none of these strikes has really disrupted everyday life for most Americans. Is that likely to change? Could big labour really be back for good? I think a lot of the disruption that we've seen has been lost within the wider COVID disruption. So, you know, a lot of food companies went on strike and it's very possible that cereal and snacks weren't delivered to grocery stores, but we've kind of gotten used to seeing empty shelves. I think at the same time, People right now are tremendously sympathetic to unions and they're angry at highly compensated bosses. And the question is, can the unions work with that and modulate their demands in a way that continues to have public support? For example, there are some big strikes that are coming up or potentially coming up. You know, the West Coast of America may have a strike next July in the ports. And if the ports in Long Beach and Los Angeles went on strike, you'd have upheaval that makes the current supply chain bottlenecks seem trivial in comparison. You know, Major League Baseball players were just locked out in a dispute. But nobody knows because nobody watches a baseball game in December. But if they're in strike in late February, people will begin to notice. And so I think what you'll see is that the tenor of the discussion will change. Also, if the Democrats lose the House, which is very possible in the Senate, all the legislative action will be a dead letter. So I think that, you know, the moment and its strength could be affected by these events that are coming up that are a product of its strength. Tom Easton, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. Patrick. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The labor market may be recovering, but the way that people work has altered undeniably. For many white-collar workers, some level of remote working is here to stay. The benefit is time saved. Freed from their daily commute, they can get their work done with enough time to spare for families and hobbies. That, at least, is the idea. But as many a remote employee knows, work can quickly gobble up every waking hour. The new challenge is deciding whose responsibility it should be to guarantee that balance. What we've seen throughout the pandemic is that there's an enormous amount of variation between businesses in terms of how much flexibility they are willing to guarantee. Roxana Munster writes about finance for The Economist. Some make grand PR statements, but then there is further variation in what they will actually deliver. So in some countries, governments are stepping in to try to legislate the new hybrid working normal. And in November, Portugal became the latest country to try to update labor laws crafted for the age of nine to five. There are many lessons from the pandemic. We must learn from them and take action. That's what we are doing. I spoke to Ana Mendes Coutinho, who is Portugal's labor minister, and she emphasized that remote working has had many benefits. But at the same time, there is a number of risks that come along with this remote working flood. So we all know how massive teleworking models were uh, introduced during the pandemic and uh, how much it uh, caused in terms of uncertainty. Uh, remote work can uh, be a very powerful instrument in some areas, namely to make bridges between uh, work and family if you regulate it, between uh, men and women, again, if you have concrete uh, measures to control the inequalities that it can create, or between cities and rural worlds. Roxana, what aspects of remote working has the Portuguese government decided need to be defined by law? So there's a couple of new laws that Portugal is trying to implement. One of them is that parents of children under the age of eight will have the flexibility to work from home whenever they want. Um, This is also an attempt to protect women from being sidelined at work because it's often them that childcare tends to fall into. There's stipulations that employers have to reimburse their remote working employees for partial internet and electricity bills. What has drawn most attention have been the attempts to regulate how much access employers have to their employees' privacy. So, for instance, using monitoring algorithms to track the work done at your computer. Here is Anna Mendes Jr. again. Despite you are at home, that doesn't give extra powers to employers to control in a different way from what you had in a workplace. So guaranteeing that there is not uh, an excess of invasion where, when you're working from your house, that there is a control on the use of algorithms 
So again, to guarantee that you have rights and rules as if you were in a traditional workplace. And the law goes even further. Not just algorithmic overseers, but bosses themselves will no longer be allowed to contact employees after work. So what the law foresees is that outside of the working hours that are contracted between the worker and the, the employer, the employer should only contact the worker if it's, if it's of uh, extremely need, if it's really urgent. So it should not be a routine. I think it's a dream of many employees to have this kind of rule. One question I do have is how this will be enforced. Will employees be required to sort of inform on their employers? This is not only a right of the worker, but it is an obligation of the, the employer. If the employer does not uh, comply with this obligation, there is a fine that can be applied by the inspections. That still seems to put workers in a quandary, though, because if they want the law enforced, it's up to them to report their bosses. Is that a flaw in this new legislation? Absolutely. There is a definite risk of employees facing retribution, though the government does recognise this and it would count as worker discrimination under the new law. There seems to be some general limitations to how much we can separate working and privacy. The parliament also stopped short of guaranteeing the right to disconnect, so to switch off devices completely after work. I asked Minister Mendes Gugino why. Well, the parliament tried to reach the maximum consensus possible and uh, to manage the different interests to guarantee that we had a balanced outcome. These fast changes in the world that we are facing need, on the one hand, to have some innovative measures, on the other hand, to guarantee the maximum consensus of everyone. Right, so it's partly a question of political pragmatism, but the law's clearly limited in its effects. Now, how does Portugal's approach compare to other countries that have tried to legislate for remote working? Portugal is an outlier in their prescriptive approach to this law. There's other countries that have attempted similar legislation, such as France in 2016, Italy soon after, and Ireland earlier this year. But Ireland's is a non-binding code of practice, and most countries veer away from prescription and towards individual responsibility on behalf of the companies. This leaves employees, as well as employers, in something of a legislative limbo. So companies find their own solutions, and we see new job roles like chief remote officers. In Germany, at carmaker Volkswagen, since 2011, servers do not transmit emails to work phones of tariff workers between 6.15pm and 7am. At Daimler, another carmaker, emails sent to an employee on vacation are automatically deleted so they come back to a nice empty inbox. And even in Japan, known for their commitment to the office, Fujitsu, a technology giant, has introduced flexible hours, the opportunity to work flexibly, and a hot desking system. Well, I really love the idea of coming back from holiday to an empty inbox, but then I think I fear the deluge that would hit me within a few hours. But anyway, Roxana, given that this has proved such difficult legislative territory in other places, why do you think Portugal's trying to go further? It's particularly urgent for Portugal for reasons that predate the pandemic. For our future, it is crucial to have young people. And we believe that the ecosystem we've been developing, namely in terms of tech industries that are investing in Portugal. This is a huge opportunity for Portugal and, of course, for the ones who decide to move here. Okay, so this is to combat a bit the loss of young people leaving Portugal to find jobs in other parts of Europe. I would say it's to, it's to attract young people 
uh, because we all face, as you know, in Europe, a demographic challenge. Portugal is one of the countries in Europe most at risk from an aging population. More than a fifth of the population is over 65. So it's experimenting with all kinds of incentives to lure young people back to Portugal. They are building a fleet of national co-working spaces, often in rural areas. They're offering $5,000 bonuses if you move to these areas. It's trying to make Portugal a paradise for digital nomads. But alongside the incentives, they have to set rules too. And that's a more difficult task. This makes me wonder whether legislation really is the answer here, or if it's more a question of working culture. Yeah, there's still plenty of incentive for ambitious employees to pick up the phone long after 5 p.m. And of course, there's other complications, especially if you want to be a haven for digital nomads. There's going to be work occurring across time zones. And even Minister Mendes Gorginio's office communicated with me after hours in preparation for this piece. So I think stressed employees may need to look beyond the state for solutions to their problem. They may indeed. Roxana, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. The stories we cover on the show are just a fraction of the brilliant reporting and analysis our correspondents do. If you're a subscriber, you'll get access to all of it. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for our best introductory offer. That link and the link to fill in our listener survey are both in the notes. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan and Nico Ralfast is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Patrick Lane and in London, this is The Economist. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.